Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. All right. Well, welcome in everyone. We are in episode six of our Matthew series as we read through the New Testament in the year. And I got it right that time. Read through the New Testament in the year. I've been calling it read through the Bible in the year. I nailed it. Woo, once in a row. So uh, we are going to wrap up Matthew. We're actually not going to go through all of all of Matthew, right, Rob? No, we're not. We're going to try to do our best to get through Matthew chapters 10 through 20 today. Mm-hmm. And then we'll just kind of save the what we call the passion narrative, which is Matthew 25 and following, or 26 and following. For a, la- for a later episode, we're going to have like an Easter special uh, coming up during Easter where we're going to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the passion of Jesus the last week of his life and the cross. Yeah, we had a fun fun discussion with our, our your, your old friend, but my new friend, Bruce Fisk, uh, who invited us down, like we should go take a trip to Peru, right? Yeah. He, he gave us an open invitation, so we could do that now. Yeah, go hiking <laughs> in the mountains of Machu yeah. Picchu and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I go for 87,000 feet or whatever he said he does on a daily basis when he's bored. <laughs> but he looks like it too. He looks like one of those guys that could just hike. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah we, we had a great conversation with him on Matthew in light of things like is uh, Matthew anti-Semitic? Is there nationalism? What's happening in there? So that's interesting. What do you want to talk about uh, tonight? So we're just going to try to do our best now to go through Matthew chapters 10 through 20, if we can get that far in this one episode. We kind of did the first nine chapters over the course of five episodes. We didn't really discuss chapters eight and nine, but we did the Sermon on the Mountain. Mm-hmm. Mentioned that eight and nine are miracles that show you what the kingdom looks like. And so let's go through 10 through 20 today. We'll save our discussion of the passion for a future episode. Okay. So if we were to highlight these chapters, 10 through 20-ish, what would we say? What are some of the key ideas that we're coming up against? Yeah. So what we'll focus on in this particular episode is this. The kingdom of God is here in Jesus, but it's not what you expected. And most significantly, the power, the way the kingdom of God does power is just not the way the kingdoms of the world do power. Mm -hmm. And so those who are in the world, kind of running the kingdoms of the world, they're going to resist this kingdom, and they're going to even uh, oppose everything that Jesus is doing and even try to crucify him. But in the kingdom of God, power comes at their expense. And so that's why there's going to be this resistance from the nations there. They're going to resist the kingdom of God, and we're just going to process what the kingdom of God looks like. Okay. And this is, this is not a new idea then, because what we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount is saying the kingdom of the God looks different. And this is what people, you know, citizens of the kingdom of God look like this. So yeah. this is not a new idea that Matthew's presenting. So in chapter 10, Matthew is recording Jesus's calling of the 12. He gives them authority over demons. How does this relate to the issue of kingdom of God and power and what we've discussed? Yeah. So given the disciples, the authority over demons actually tells you this who the real enemy is behind the nations. The Gospel of Mark brought this out, that the enemy was the devil from chapter mm-hmm. 1 and following. This is who you, it's not Rome, it's the, it's the devil, but the devil is the one who's empowering the nations and behind that. And we'll certainly get into that when we get to the book of Revelation there in much more detail. Yeah. And I know all about this because I just taught on Gog and Magog today. So man, that's, yeah, that, that's, it's, it's all over the place. So you have John the Baptist's, are you the expected one in chapter 11? If, if anyone should have known who Jesus was, it's John the Baptist, their family, they, you know, got to think he was at his bar mitzvah, right? No, that probably was nothing they did then. But it, like, why is John the Baptist asking this question that kind of would seem obvious? Yeah, this actually just illustrates the point that we made. And that is the kingdom of God has come, but it's not what you expected. So, you know, when we get to Luke's gospel, you'll note that John the Baptist like leap, leapt in the womb when he was six months mm-hmm. in the womb and Mary walks in the room. If anybody knows who Jesus is, that he's the Messiah, the Gospel of John even says that when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, that John the Baptist said, I saw the Spirit ascending and descending on him. That's the Messiah. I know Mm -hmm. who he is. And then all of a sudden, some time goes by, but Jesus is not doing what we expected. Mm -hmm. If he's the Messiah, then why hasn't he set up his throne in Jerusalem? Why hasn't he outed the Romans? Why hasn't he taken control and taken power? And so you see this, this conflict that even John the Baptist goes, this is not what we expected. And so now know how Jesus responds to John the Baptist. He responds to John the Baptist by saying, look, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear. Go tell John what you see and hear, and he'll understand that this is what the kingdom of God actually re- really looks like. 
So Jesus says that John is the greatest of all persons born of women, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is even greater than he. How does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. So this is Revelation. Uh, this is Revelation. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's Revelation. Every, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. That, that I tell you that of all the people born of women, no one is greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And the answer is that John the Baptist, he's the prophet who paves the way for the Messiah to come. And therefore, he's prior to the Messiah. Just think of it this way. Mm. Temporally, he's prior to Jesus. And because he's prior to Jesus, he's not a member of the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God happens after he comes, after, mm. after he goes off the scene, so to speak. And because of that, the one who's in the kingdom of God has begun to experience the fullness of the kingdom. And John the Baptist was like part of the old kingdom and mm -hmm. hadn't experienced the kingdom of God yet. And that's why John the Baptist might be the greatest person born of women, but he's not as great as anyone in the kingdom of God because he hasn't experienced the kingdom of God. Okay. In Matthew chapter 12, Matthew informs us that Jesus is greater than the temple. He's greater than Jonah. He's greater than Solomon. What do these things have in common other than they're just Old Testament relics or ideas? Yeah. So really important now when this is, this is uh, Matthew 12 in verse six, he's greater than the temple in verse 41 he's greater than Jonah in verse 42 he's greater than Solomon. First thing that we would know will be that, that while well, Solomon and the temple both have something in common, that is, of course, the temple itself. Solomon's the building mm -hmm. of the temple. Those two are, are an indication of God's desire that, that the temple will be this place of rest from injustice. The Jonah one's a little bit more interesting, so let's proceed a little bit as we go through the chapter. As you go through the chapter, Matthew 12, you'll notice the disciples are accused of breaking the Sabbath because they plucked heads of grain in order to eat, and that's harvesting crops on the Sabbath day, and you can't do it. Jesus explains that to the accusers that this is what the Sabbath was for. It's mm -hmm. a day for justice. After all, I desire mercy and uh, compassion and not a sacrifice in verse 7. The Sabbath was to ensure that the oppressed laborers were blessed. That's why you have a, a day off, because mm -hmm. the laborers don't want to work every single day. Give them a day of rest. So Jesus is, comes along and tells the Pharisees, hey, look, this is exactly what the Sabbath is for, and you're concerned that the law gets upheld actually at the expense of the hungry. And that's the very purpose for which the law was made. So in this conflict, the issue is with the religious leaders, which is what we see all throughout, but specifically with the Pharisees. Why would the Pharisees want to resist the kingdom of God? Isn't this what they wanted to come after all? This is why they... We're all about the, the boundaries to make sure that God's people were behaving in a certain way to make sure that they're, you know, not going out of, you know, not getting cursings again. Like, like this seems like something they'd want to be a part of, right? Yeah. So they're resisting Jesus and the kingdom of God because to some extent they benefited from Roman rule and oppression. Now the Sadducees mm -hmm. definitely benefited. And the Pharisees certainly did not like Rome, but they were given privileges with the temple and what have you. So as long as everything stays, stays the way it is, we can have our temple, we can do what we want, and we'll tolerate Roman rule and Roman oppression. Jesus comes along, and if he's the Messiah, it's like, okay, this could be good news. This is great. But you're not the kind of Messiah that we were expecting. And the problem with that is this, is there have been several messianic pretenders before this time, and there mm -hmm. were some after the time of Jesus as well. So which I like within a couple of years of Jesus, five, 10 years prior and afterwards, there are these messianic pretenders. And when these messianic pretenders kind of get this rebel band together and they try to attack Rome, Rome comes down heavy-handed on everybody. Mm -hmm. And so the Pharisees were not only guardians of the Torah and guardians of Israel and guardians of the temple, but they were also trying to protect themselves and their own prosperity because they were benefiting to some extent from Roman oppression. So they're kind of like, no, we're not sure the problem that they had with Jesus, of course, was the fact that Jesus wasn't kind of giving them any uh, uh, any honor and privilege and status. Mm -hmm. So they're like, yeah, no, we're not sure that we're gonna we're gonna allow you to do this. Well, there's a whole, yeah, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of stuff we're not gonna touch. But man, that sounds fun to talk about. Okay, so we mentioned Jonah uh, as part of this. How does that fit into the story then? All right, so Jesus comes now in verse 18 of this chapter says he proclaimed to proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So the gospel of the kingdom is about a kingdom about justice, and arguing against the injustices that are happening in the kingdoms of the world. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And of course, Jonah was, of course, the one who preached to the Gentiles, and all of Nineveh ended up getting saved. Of course, the Jesus movement is going to be greater than Jonah because it's going to reach the ends of the earth. And so Jesus kind of refers to Isaiah 42, which is one of these servant songs. And the servant songs are directed towards Israel and their role as God's servant or witness to the nations. And so what Jesus is doing is he's saying, look, I'm coming and the kingdom of God's here and it's going to bring about justice for the sake of the oppressed. But the leaders, the Pharisees and others, are just not sure what this means for them. That's why there's this resistance then. Hmm. So this would be why some of Jesus' statements on the Sermon on the Mount that you are light of the world, you're salt of the earth. That's what makes this important. It's, uh, it's what Israel is supposed to do, hearkening back to Isaiah specifically. It's to bring justice to the nations. Yes. But now, of course, we have to go, well, what, okay, what does justice look like? Because biblical justice, you know, we throw the word justice out there all the mm-hmm. time, and it's kind of this nice, cool word in certain Christian circles as well. Or, or it's an, uh, an evil word. It's, yeah, it's this yeah, yeah. dichotomy, it, yeah. Cause, yeah, because kind, of, kind of the old guard still, still looks at it and goes, oh, no, that's social gospel stuff. Yeah, we don't yeah. want to do this. So justice is central. I'm going to check a little bit because justice is so central to the biblical yeah. text, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what Jesus' kingdom was all about. And that's why he was upset with the Pharisees. When like, what do you mean we can't pick heads of grain? That's the whole point of the Sabbath is the, the hungry can have food and giving them a day of rest so they're not, they're not oppressed. So Jesus quotes Isaiah 42. And Isaiah 42 says he'll bring forth justice to the nations. Mm-hmm. And the word justice here is this word mishvat. And I discussed this, by the way, on a uh, a podcast that I did at the beginning of February with this Bible study group that I've been posting. So if you look at the, the episode, I think it's episode number four, where we talk about mishpat and tzedakah, the justice and righteousness. But mishpat basically means to establish a societal order where the needs of everyone are at least met. Now, we're not going to address like, well, how do you do that? You know, is mm-hmm. it socialism? Is it democracy? It doesn't matter. The point of, of biblical justice is that Mishvat means everybody has at least their needs met. And so it's kind of this Deuteronomy 15, 4, there should be no poor among you. Mm-hmm. Ah, when there's no poor among you, that's when we have this Mishvat. Yeah. And, and I'll just, I'm going to interject something real here. Yeah. If you're from the, the Christian tradition that has an issue with this, okay. And, and I'm sensitive towards that because yeah. I would say my tradition is you hear these terms and it's like, wait, are you, is this liberalism? What, you know, what, what is this sort of thing? I, I would highly recommend Tim Keller's little book, Generous Justice. Yes. Because it's a very good theological introduction. It's very layman's level. It's probably a series of sermons or something. That, but I, that's a very good way to introduce to this and realize, yes. okay, this isn't a, a political liberal thing. This is at the heart of what was happening, like you said, in the Old Testament. So Yeah, yeah, very good. I, I, it's an excellent source. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, so... What was what does this have to do with Jesus's miracles then? Because we've been seeing this. This was the point in chapters eight and nine, yeah. seeing these miracles play out. How does justice and miracles go together? All right. So they work together because Jesus's miracles weren't just simply healings; they were miracles of restoration. And we'll see this in the Gospel of Luke also. What happens is when Jesus heals a man uh, whose hand is withered. Well, the reality now is not only is his, his hand not withered any longer, but that means he can now go back to work. Mm-hmm. And so. Uh, this is why Jonah and Solomon are both mentioned, because what happened is they both ministered directly or indirectly uh, among the nations. And the justice that Jesus is bringing for Israel is so that Israel might be a blessing to the nations. So these were miracles of restorations and, and showing what the kingdom of God really looks like. So let's move now to chapter 13. Man, we're flying through this thing. Yeah, it's yeah, been 14 yeah. minutes. <laughs> Jesus tells seven parables which that has to be significant. Uh, they were probably not told at the same time. And the same thing, we'll, we'll see this in Luke, but it's like, it probably wasn't parable day where he just got them all out of the way, right? There's a reason why they're put together there. Um, but it's, it's, you know, this is a good example of gospel writers taking stuff and compiling them to tell a specific story, right? Uh, so, you know, these ones have to do with parables in the kingdom of God. Why is Matthew doing this? Yeah, because... So the kingdom of the, the seven parables on the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God means this. And so it, it's explaining and unfolding what the kingdom of God looks like. And we'll kind of come back to this at the end of our discussion tonight, today, I think as well. But the reality is, is that the injustices that occur in the world are often those in power, not caring for the sake of the other. 
Mm. So Jesus is kind of contrasting these two kingdoms and saying, this is what the kingdom of God looks like, and it's not like, like the kingdoms of the world. I know before we've discussed that parables are apocalyptic, and that's definitely a world that that you live in. What, what's the significance of apocalypse, uh, apocalypse there? Yeah, so we know that they're apocalyptic. And again, it's important to understand that Jesus's teachings are also apocalyptic. It's not just the book of Revelation, things mm-hmm. like that. In fact, the book of Revelation is just picking up on Jesus's teachings in some, in some way. Jesus tells a parable, and then he says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And what he means by that is what I just said is not easily understood. And mm-hmm. if you want to know what it means, you need to come to me and find the answer. The answer is in me. And the distinction then is, is that the kingdom of God is not coming the way you were expecting it. And only those who have ears to hear or even eyes to see are able to enter the kingdom of God and understand, oh, because it's a radical frame of reference transformation, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's not what you're thinking. It's not about me establishing a kingdom in Jerusalem and overthrowing Rome and doing power the way the world does, it's this radically undermining the way the world does power because power in the kingdom of God is laying down your life on a cross for the sake of, for the sake of the other. And just to tie something together, we've popularly come to understand the term revelation and apocalypse, maybe to not even be connected where it's, it's like the same, <laughs> that's the word in Greek, but we think of the apocalypse as this doomsday thing that's going to happen. Whereas apocalypse is, is the word where we get revelation and it's just an unveiling or revealing, right? So that's, to, to reveal or to unveil yeah. so something that was hidden, that was not understood mm-hmm. like a parable of Jesus. Mm-hmm. What's hard for us today, by the way, Vinny is Many people who are listening to this, maybe they grew up in the church or they've been in the Bible studies for a number of years now, and the parables all make sense to them. Oh, I get it, I get it, I get it. But they didn't make sense when they were told. Mm-hmm. Or they have this striking effect, uh, the parable of the tax collector and, and the Pharisee. And Jesus says, that guy went home justified. You're like, what? No, no, you got it wrong, Jesus. That's the guy that, it's the Pharisee that should be justified. Mm-hmm. She's like, no, no, it's and so this is this revelatory unveiling nature of the parables are like, oh, what? Yeah. So we move into Matthew t- uh, 15. We have this debate over Corbon. <laughs> uh, what's, what exactly is this? What's happening here? So again, it's this issue around the interpretation of the law and how it applies in the kingdom of God. And what's happening now is Jesus is not, he's not really debating the law versus tradition but the purpose of the law and how their traditions kind of how actually use, they, they use their traditions to navigate around the law so they didn't have to obey it. Mm-hmm. So the law says, honor your father and mother. The Pharisees came along and said, well, if you declare your wealth Corbin, you can use it for this purpose here or this purpose here, but you don't have to use it for your parents. Could you describe what Corbin, Corbin yeah. means? So Corbin basically is uh, sacred. Mm-hmm. It's, so it, it's money that's going to be given to charity or, or goods that are going to go to charity. Now, remember, the, the thou shall honor your father and mother actually applied more to when they got old. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember for myself, and now I'm not sure about you, but I always looked at your father and mother as something, oh, that's what a child does. Then when you become 18, you don't have to obey them anymore. Well, no, because then you leave and cleave. To, yeah, you exactly, expect, right. So you don't worry about them. Yeah. Yeah. But in the ancient world, this family unit stayed together. And that when the parents got too old to work, you provided for their well-being. And so that's just the way this, it, it, you know, it's this uh, cyclical thing mm-hmm. uh, that's happening there. So they had this idea, well, if you declare this Corbin, your wealth or your p- property or possessions Corbin, dedicated to God is what it basically means, mm-hmm. then you don't have to use it for the well-being of your parents. So they had circumvented the commandments. Okay. So in 15, 17 through 20, passage that follows discusses Jesus making all foods clean. And that's what we read, you know, in Mark's take on that. But this is where many evangelicals today say, you know, see, it's all about the heart. That's what matters. It's it's merely the inward thing, right? Yeah, he specifically says right in verse uh, 19, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, mm-hmm. adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness and slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. So this is the context. Well, the answer is no, Jesus is not talking about, not to say that it's necessarily wrong to have your heart right before God, uh, but the point actually is what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of God is about being transformed people Mm -hmm. so that your heart has been transformed and that you do what is right because you've been transformed. 
And transform people act like transform people, essentially. So he's saying it's not really what goes in that's important, but what comes out. And the distinction of what goes in is food. And food in that first century Jewish world it distinguished between clean and unclean. In other words, it distinguished between Jews and Gentiles. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is saying, that's just not how we define the people of God any longer. Mm-hmm. We define the people of God as those who don't commit murder, those who don't, don't commit adultery, and those who don't steal. The distinction again, though, is that this is what the powerful people do to the poor. Again, we think so much in our individualist mindset, like, okay, if I'm a good person or I'm a godly person, then I don't murder. And we talked about this in our Sermon on the Mount episode. And that is, it's the King Ahaz who actually kills uh, Naboth and takes his villain, Ahab, I think it was, right? And, And his wife, Jezebel, and they take his land. It's the poor who are the ones who are going to be exposed and uh, uh, oppressed and suffering under murder, committing adultery and stealing. So it has this larger context of justice and injustice saying what we are defined as, as people who do justice and not as Jew or Gentile. Chapter 16. Now we'll jump there. The passage begins with the Pharisees and the Sadducees asking for a sign. So how does this fit in with what we're talking about? Yeah, same thing. It, the context is still is, are you really the Messiah or not the Messiah? And this was a matter of really serious concern for them, because as I mentioned before, they have to give an account to Rome. They've been put into place by Rome, and they have privileges from Rome, and they're benefiting from Rome, especially the Sadducees. The Sadducees mm-hmm. were wealthy aristocrats that just simply, I usually say aristocrats, because it just, it's yeah. just <laughs> but I actually got it right this time. Aristocrats. Yeah, yeah. The, they're the wealthy aristocrats, who benefited from Roman oppression. So they're mm-hmm. like, okay, uh, give us a sign as to whether you're the Messiah or not. So this is why Jesus warns them of the leaven or yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Yeah, in, yeah, in verse six, exactly. So leaven is a small batch of dough that's left over to make next week's bread. And Jesus and Paul, by the way, does this also in 1 Corinthians 5. He warns them about the corrupting influence. A little yeast leavens the whole mm-hmm. batch of dough. So you have this leaven left over, and then it influences the whole batch of dough. And Jesus is saying, look, the false teaching is this corrupting influence of those who want to compromise with the powers of the world. And because they're compromising with the powers of the world, they're ultimately minimizing suffering and minimizing persecution, which goes back to the parable of the sower that we've discussed before. Okay. So then Jesus brings them to Caesarea Philippi near the base of Mount Hermon, and then there they confess that Jesus is the Christ. And so Peter's confession and Jesus's affirmation of Peter, um, it's kind of been the source of controversy. So many view Matthew 16, verse 18, as either having like a, a Catholic interpretation where Peter is the rock on which Jesus is building his church, or you have a Protestant interpretation where no, Jesus has to be the rock. Yeah, so in verse 18 of chapter 16, Jesus says, you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. And the gates of Hades, or hell, shall not overpower it. What's possibly an understanding here actually is this. It could be that it's neither the Catholic or the Protestant view. Mm. Now, if you were to favor one or the other, I would probably argue for the Protestant view in the sense that back in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, build your house upon the rock, or build your house upon the sand, and the Mm -hmm. wise man built his house upon the rock. So I think that would be our our clue as far as textually speaking, that Jesus is our, or Matthew has already established that Jesus is the rock. Actually, I I just realized there's many people who don't understand that this is a controversy here. So basically what's happening is there's a connection between the word rock and then how Peter's name would be corresponding to that, how it's kind of a play on words there, right? And so in the Roman Catholic tradition, they'd be saying, see, Peter is our first pope. Jesus declared that that on him, they would build, he would build his church. Therefore, the Catholic church is the true church, true true church, because it has its roots back to Peter himself, right? So that's basically the argument that's made, right? Yeah, yeah. Kephos, which is Peter's name in Aramaic. Mm -hmm. Kephos means rock. The difficulty, and... I think you can make a really good argument both ways. Let's just put it that way. So yes, I'm pro- we, you know, we're both Protestants, so we kind of lean toward the Jesus thing, right? Yeah, but you're not theologizing here. You're just going with the text. With yeah, that text. So mm-hmm. the text itself seems to indicate more on the Jesus side of things because of Matthew chapter 7, mm-hmm. he's the rock. But how about this? Matthew and Mark both place this event 
at Mount at the base of Mount Hermon, Caesarea Philippi, which is as, basically as far north as Jesus has ever been, as far as we know in the Gospels. Maybe Tyre and Sidon up on the coast of Lebanon, you can argue maybe is a, quite a, a little bit far, further north. Now, Mount Hermon is actually a really significant mountain in ancient pagan circles and even in some of the Jewish circles. In fact, there's a book that you might be aware of called First Enoch, which is mm -hmm. not part of the Christian canon, but yeah. the Catholics kind of have it in there. And in First Enoch, it says that the sons of God that descended upon the daughters of men in, in Genesis chapter 6 and had those offspring and all that good stuff, and that'll be a conversation for another day. Mm -hmm. First Enoch says that happened at the base of Mount Hermon. Mm -hmm. All right, so Mount Hermon is this significant place. And going back, maybe we'll have Dr. Broadhurst back on, talk about yeah. Mount Hermon even more, because that's really what's going on. Well, there's in First Enoch, that's where the gates of hell are. So Nodi says, and upon this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Mm -hmm. So could it be that he's not talking about Peter or himself? He's talking about the rock where he's standing, mm -hmm. meaning the base of Mount Hermon, where the gates of hell are located. And the argument in favor of that argument, argument in favor of that argument, <laughs> would be this. I remember always thinking, okay, so he's going to build his church and the gates of hell might come out the mm -hmm, church, but mm -hmm. the gates of hell are never going to prevail against, against the church. The problem with that thinking, right, that the gates of hell kind of attack the church, but they never prevail, mm -hmm. is that gates are defensive. Yes. They're not offensive. They're there to protect something. And Jesus is like, look, this is where the gates of hell are at, if that's the case. And this is speculation. So I'm not saying this is the definite answer here. But if he's at the base of Mount Hermon, and this is where the gates of hell are located. And he's like, and even the gates of hell aren't going to stop me. I'm going to start here and I'm going to advance beyond them. That might be what's going on there. I actually want to pause real quick right here yeah. because this is something that like, I, cause I taught on this today oh. and in, in really parsing through the difference between Sheol, Hades, Gehenna and Lake of Fire. So even like in this text, like as I'm looking it up in like in obviously in an English translation, it's the gates of hell, but it's the gates of Hades. Right. And Hades is the equivalent to the Hebrew Sheol, and that's not an eternal type of hell like the lake of fire. It even got me thinking here, and I, I just haven't dug into this. It's just like, like okay, what, what is this passage actually saying? Because the translation of gates of hell, which I'm assuming is just a carryover from King James, because they translate a lot of Hades as hell. But it Hades is the Sheol, like the the abode of waiting prior to final judgment. Is this talking about the same thing? Like what's happening here? So anyway, that's just a me like, yeah, you know, <laughs> that, well, let's go ahead and talk about it for a second. Okay. That's your systematic theology, perhaps maybe having too much of an influence and maybe okay. my, my not, and you might be right. I'm just saying, well, no, no, I'm actually looking at it from, well, yeah, from a non-systematic point. No, no just, you're actually looking just, at it more systematically, theologically than you think you are. Because well, I'm trying to say, okay, yeah. if this is what the concept was in the Jewish world, are they thinking of it? Oh, are yeah. you saying I'm thinking of it systematically because I'm thinking of the sequence and how yes. things are? Okay, exactly. got it, yeah, got yeah. it. You're trying to put them all together and okay. make it all fit. That's, that's what I mean by that. Yeah. So Hades comes from the Septuagint. Uh-huh. So when the, when the Greek translation of the Old Testament was done, you have this word Sheol, which yeah. basically means the grave, mm -hmm. where your body goes. Yes. And, but it also meant kind of where your soul goes. Hebrew only has this one word to refer to where your body goes and where your soul goes. Okay. And so when the Greek comes along, they have to decide, well, what are we going to do? And so they, because Greek has several words, mm -hmm. you know, paradise, things of that nature. So they use the word Hades to refer to kind of both these places there. So that's kind of where you get that from. But the question is, can we develop a theology of hell mm -hmm. from, you know, the New Testament going, okay, well, it goes beyond this, you know, and is the lake of fire an actual place? Mm -hmm. Gehenna, of course, was the garbage dumps in the yeah. city of Jerusalem. And so that comes to, oh, it's a place of fire, which obviously gets used by Dante's Inferno mm -hmm. and all that. Yeah, and yeah. that's kind of where that really kind of gets into. So I don't know that I would draw any major distinctions of one replacing the other or one sequentially being here and one sequentially being there. What do you do I, with it in Revelation 20, though, in the back half where you have death and Hades thrown into a lake of fire? Yeah, so the lake of fire would be the eternal abode. So that's fine. I don't have a problem mm -hmm. with that. But are thinked, are they? Mm -hmm. I mean, because what do you do with the parable in Luke 16 with yeah. the rich man and Lazarus? Yeah, yeah. yeah, and I think the answer is, I would simply say as you know, hermeneutics, as a biblical interpretation, that's, that's my field, say, 
Mm-hmm. I don't think we have enough to go on. If you theologians want to put it all together and make it work, that's fine. So I don't have a problem with it. I'm just saying, I don't think we have enough to go on. So you would just use Hades as another way of describing whatever this eternal fate death. is. It's death. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's death and Hades are probably synonyms. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So we could assume that the rest of chapter 16 and 17 then continue these themes, but we're rowing low on time. So let's just continue moving forward. It's easy to read the stories that follow the confession of Jesus and the transfiguration as kind of random and unrelated. You know, in 17, 14 through 20, you have disciples that can't cast out a demon. And then the rest of 17, 24 through 27, you have this thing on paying taxes. And let's be honest, how, how are those connected at all? Yeah. So the thing to remember is the gospel writers were really good at what they were doing. And they weren't just writing random stories and kind of adding them here and there that they're continuing these themes. So we had Jesus' identity. Who is he? He's the Christ. And Peter confesses that. And you're Peter. And upon this rock, I'll build my church and all that. Then chapter 17 begins with the transfiguration of Jesus. And so guess what? Even the gates of hell can't withstand the coming of the kingdom of God. And guess what happens in the next chapter? The disciples can't cast out a demon. So clearly this not being able to cast out a demon Mm -hmm. is like, I just told you the gates of hell won't overcome the church. And then you guys, the gates of hell like win because you Mm -hmm. guys can't even cast out a demon. So that's the connection there. Then in Matthew 17, verses 22, verse 22, Jesus again predicts he's going to suffer, die and rise again in the third day. And then immediately after that, there's a question about paying taxes. Now the tax that we're talking about here is actually different from the one that you might see in the gospel of Mark. This is called the two drachma tax. And this is a tax that was actually used called the temple tax in the book of Exodus. So here's the significance of what's happening. The temple tax is something that you pay as a Jew. This is an Old Testament tax. And you pay it, and it goes to the temple. It doesn't go to the Romans. It goes to the temple. And you think, okay, well, that's totally acceptable. I mean, every Mm -hmm. Jew, I don't want to pay taxes to Rome. But if I'm paying taxes to my own people, that's fine. No problem, especially to help maintain the temple. That's fine. The problem with that is this. The tax becomes just another tax upon a people that are already overwhelmed with taxation from Rome. Mm. And so Rome's taxing them to the hilt to to the extent that they can't actually make enough food to provide for themselves and to pay all the taxes. So when the temple tax comes along, they're like, uh... I know it's only a two drachma tax, but I can't afford to pay this at, at all either. So what Jesus does then, he, he goes on to say, let me, let me go ahead and read it. It says in Matthew 17, it says, they come to Jesus and say, hey, they come to Peter and say, hey, what does your teacher think about paying the two drachma tax? This is verse 24. Jesus said, well, guess what? What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? And the answer is from strangers, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they don't collect taxes from themselves mm-hmm. and post taxes upon somebody else. So Peter says, well, from strangers. And Jesus said, exactly. The sons are exempt. And of course, Jesus is like, uh, we're sons mm-hmm. because this is the kingdom of God that's being established. Mm-hmm. So actually, we're exempt from this tax. But guess what? Go ahead and find this fish and open its mouth. You're going to get this coin. It's going to come out. No, no problem. Mm-hmm. Jesus is saying, look, we're sons of the kingdom and we're exempt from it. And the ones, this tax that burdens the poor and the oppressed, it's the whole point. The kingdoms of the world do things this way. And as they, the way they do power is to keep the people in power in power. And the result of that is that it oppresses the poor and, and the marginalized. And Jesus is like, you know what? The poor and the marginalized, they're actually members of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they're sons. And therefore, they don't have to pay this tax at all. And that's why he goes into chapter 18. And throughout 18, you're going to see this constant reference to the kingdom of God is for the least of these. Mm -hmm. Uh, Verses 6 and verse 10, verse 14, all refer to these little ones. And then in verse 15, he refers to them as brothers and sisters. So this constant language about the least of these is Jesus' way of saying, these are who the members of the kingdom of God are, and they're actually exempt from such a tax. Yeah. So in chapter 18, we have this the famous passage on how to deal with things when there's conflict within the church. But if you are right, then it's not so much about interpersonal relationship as, as, as it's about acts of justice, right? 
Yeah, so what we're going to see now in chapters 18 through 20 is Matthew devotes these three chapters to, you know, how do we react as members of this community of God's people? What, is it, what does it look like? And he begins by saying, well, let's talk about internal conflicts within the community. And this is the famous Matthew 18 passage. Oh, here's how we do it. You know, you go to your brother, which has been so often abused. Mm-hmm. It, it can be really messy. And I, I, want, I want to say when we went through a church called Tove with uh, Scott and Laura, yeah. I think they have a section on this in their book that was really insightful. So what Jesus is talking about, though, is, is how do we do these internal conflicts? And remember, the whole context is the kingdom of God versus the kingdoms of the world. The kingdoms of the world do power and cause injustice. The kingdom of God is about justice, transformation, and restoration. So Jesus comes along and says, look, here's the deal. I don't want you guys to resolve disputes by going to the nations. Why? Because the nations aren't going to give you justice. They don't mm. give you justice. You know, now Paul's going to go on and say, yeah, by the way, don't take your stuff before the nations either because we shouldn't be doing the church's mess, making it available to the pagans. But it's really about this fact that you're just not going to find justice there. And again, it's hard sometimes for Americans, or I'll say it again, it's hard sometimes for white Americans to relate to this because they think, okay, when we, I go to the nations, I go to the state, I go to the courts, I get justice. Mm -hmm. But if think about from the sake of a minority, they don't always get justice from the state or think about other nations where you're simply not going to get justice unless you pay a bribe. And that's the way the Roman courts worked, by the way, you know, Paul Mm -hmm. spends a lot of time in prison in the book of acts because they were waiting for a bribe. Jesus' answer is, don't go to the courts because you won't find justice there. Instead, resolve disputes amongst yourselves. So this language of like binding and loosing then in verse 18 of chapter 18, it has this authority to say, you guys are given authority to interpret the law in in any given situation. And because of that, you now can decide what's right and what's wrong, what's just and unjust for yourselves. Hmm. And that's why we don't have to go to the courts to solve these things. It, that's a difficult passage to understand, though, right? The binding yeah. and loosing. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. It is. But the binding and loosing is most likely this context of interpreting the text and who is the interpreters of it. In that world, mm-hmm. it was the Pharisees and religious leaders who had the authority to interpret the text. And Jesus is like, I'm giving that to you. And that's something maybe we should discuss in more detail on a later uh, yeah. episode. Because what we often think is, oh, every individual Christian then has the authority. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think the answer is no, this is a community. Again, the context of this passage is not my individualness and your individualness, and we have a conflict with one another, we go to the church for it. But the context of how did the church deal with these conflicts within mm-hmm. the community? And I think he's given the community the authority to interpret the scriptures and to bind and loose and to make declarations of right and wrong and justice and injustice. There. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So we often read these type of passages in terms of personal forgiveness and personal spirituality, but that's not really happening. No, and this is not the context of the passages. Doesn't mean it doesn't apply there. Sure. But the context of the passage, of course, has this corporate sense of justice. So when Jesus is talking about forgiving sins, like, hey, Matthew, you know, hey, Peter says, hey, am I okay if I forgive someone who, you know, seven times? And Jesus is like, no, how about 70 times seven? What he's saying now is forgiving of their debts so that they can have their land back. Mm. And that is, okay, you only have to forgive somebody three times. That's the Pharisees' way of doing it. Matthew comes along and says, if I do it seven times, is that good enough? Jesus is like, no, 70 times seven. But it's not about forgiving your personal sins against a brother or sister who did something against you. The context actually is about forgiving of debts and the restoration of land and possessions. Mm. Okay. So when we see 77s in the Bible, that shouldn't be interpreted literally. It means, no, there's this, un- it's, it's, it's a significant number and without limit. And again, let me clarify this. We're not talking about a wife who's being abused by her husband. Mm-hmm. You have to continue to forgive him every time he says, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. No, you might forgive him eventually, but you certainly don't get back into that situation and give him the opportunity to do it again. But Jesus yes. said 70 times, no, he's talking about forgiving somebody of their actual debts, mm. monetary so that they can get their land back. Mm-hmm. And that happens every seven years in the Old Testament law. And Jesus comes along and says, no, we're doing it now. Because without that land, you are 
well, now you're paying somebody else as well as Rome, as well as the two drachma tax. They couldn't, they couldn't stand up underneath it. Okay. All right, so moving into chapter 19, how does Jesus' teaching on divorce in verses 1 through 15 fit with the notion of communal justice then? Yeah, so this now becomes the second part of Matthew's teaching. In 19, chapter, chapter 19, verses 1 through 15, Matthew sets now for us how relationships are supposed to function within the kingdom of God. So we talked about like communal justice. Now we're looking at relationship. And the Pharisees ask us a question about divorce. And Jesus responds to them by saying, well, you know, guess what? In the creation, in Genesis, the husband and wives were one flesh. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we shouldn't separate this. And the Pharisees go, well, then why did Moses command us the husband to give us a certificate of divorce, which is Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Jesus responds by saying, um, he didn't command you to give us a certificate of divorce. He permitted you to do it. The reality is that you're not supposed to divorce at all. But think about divorce in this sense. Divorce doesn't hurt economically the male at all. Mm -hmm. It hurts the woman who actually is dependent upon the male for her well-being and for her provisions. If you don't give a certificate of divorce, she's unmaritable. She can't get married to anybody else at all now because she's still yours, but you've cast her out. It's this economic hardship against what? Against the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, these little ones. So Jesus is talking about divorce in this context of saying, it's this inactive injustice uh, that you're doing. So Jesus goes along and says, okay, here's the deal. If you cause one of these little ones to stumble, you'd be better off having a millstone hung around your neck and be thrown in the depths of the sea than doing that. Mm. And so in the gospel of Mark, Jesus doesn't permit divorce at all in Mark 10. And again, in Mark 10, it's more this context of Herod and his uh, illicit marriage to his, mm. his niece and all that good stuff, and his, which was married to his own brother, uh, a woman who married to his own brother. But in Matthew's gospel now, it's like, okay, well, we have this injustice that's occurring when there is a divorce. Jesus is establishing this condition that says, we're not going to have divorce in the kingdom of God because we're restoring this Eden and this Edenic conditions. And when we do that, there's harmony within an equity within relationship. But Matthew says, okay, here's the deal. Jesus does permit divorce in the context of immorality. And when there's a context of immorality, yeah, give her a certificate of divorce, send her on away, but allow her the opportunity to be restored back into the society. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is that Matthew talks about when a man divorces a woman for any and every reason, because it's this context of this man being in power. Mm -hmm. And when he does this thing, what he's done actually now is broken the marriage, marriage relationship and obviously harming economically the woman. Hmm. Continuing on in chapter 19, we read of the rich young ruler, and you know, this is especially in, in Protestant circles, this is the story on how to get saved, right? Yeah. Um, is this accurate or is there more to it than that? Yeah, there's a lot more to it than that. Again, it, it continues the theme of justice and this theme of helping those who are oppressed and those who are suffering under injustice. So what's happening is this. This man actually serves now as a negative example of how the community of God's supposed to act. In other words, don't do this. The rich man Maybe another way of summarizing would be he serves mammon and not, and not God. And mm. the reason why is this. The man comes up to Jesus and says, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what, what do you think? And he says, you know, keep the commandments. And the man says, you know, well, which ones? I'm in Matthew chapter uh, 19, verse 18. He says, which ones? And Jesus said, well, you know, don't commit adultery. Uh, don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And love your neighbor as yourself. So what Jesus does is he quotes five of the Ten Commandments, mm -hmm. and then he adds this provision from the book of, Le of Leviticus that says, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the man says, well, I've done all these things in verse uh, 20. All these things I've, I've kept since I was young. So Jesus says in verse 21, he says, well, if you want to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasures in heaven, and then come follow me. And it says, the man went away grieved because he owned much property. Now, here's the reality. You can't own much property mm -hmm. without taking it from somebody else. Mm -hmm. Because everybody has an allotment of property according to their clan, their tribe, yep. right? Their family. With 
the only way you can have much property is if you got somebody else's property. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? It means you didn't forgive 70 times seven. Mm -hmm. Because if you did, you'd restore the land. Mm -hmm. So the man thinks, well, I've kept all the, all the commandments. And she's like, actually, you haven't. Because you've acquired wealth and property at the expense of somebody else. You've actually denied the very provisions of what the law is all about. Then Jesus goes on to say this. Now, what's interesting, actually, is this. It says, when, when Jesus finished this, he says, you know, it's really hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, because obviously, they have to do justice and give back their, their, their possessions to everybody else. And then the disciples heard this in verse 25. It says, they said, well, who can, can be saved? And Jesus says in verse 26, well, with men it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. And then Peter comes up to Jesus and says, you know, hey, by the way, Jesus, I just want to make sure we're good on this because we left everything and follows you. And Jesus says, you know what? You did. Good job. Uh, then he goes on to say in verse 28, I'm going to give you the authority to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And the point of that is, the way you're doing justice and the way you're doing the kingdom stands in marked contrast to this rich young man who wouldn't give up his possessions to help the poor and the needy because you did. You sold those things and followed me. I'm going to give you authority to sit on the, uh, on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of, of Israel. So again, does that make sense? That how mm -hmm. con It's about the kingdom. And who can rule in the kingdom and who can't rule in the kingdom? And the answer is those who do, who do justice for the sake of the marginalized and the oppressed, they can rule in the kingdom and the, the rich young man can't. Yeah. All right. Chapter 20, we're here. So you have the parable of the workers in the field, which is, this is a highly debated parable, right? Yeah. Like which one's not, right? Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. The other ones are easy, but now it gets difficult. Well, it, it's, hard to understand, I guess you would say, right? What happens is he tells a parable about, okay, well, these went out and worked in the field like early in the day. Some came out later on in the afternoon. Some came out like at the last hour. And then the owner of the field says, okay, time to pay everybody now for their work. And the one who only worked one hour got a full day's wage. And then the one who worked like half a day got a full day's wage. And the ones who had worked all day were thinking, well, if they got like a full day's wage. We should get like double, triple, who knows what. And the reality was they actually got a full day's wage also. And they began to complain. And the answer is, wait, wait a minute. I didn't do you any wrong at all. You worked a full day. I gave you a full day's wage. What are you complaining about? What, what's the problem here? And the parable ends in verse 16 by saying, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And that verse is actually a repetition of how chapter, 18, chapter 19 ended. So when Jesus tells the disciples, hey, you know, good job. You sold all your possessions. You gave to the poor and you came and followed me. You did exactly what I'm talking about. I'm going to make you able to rule and sit on 12 thrones and judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he says, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. That's verse 30. So the fact that verse 30 says the same thing that verse 16 of chapter 20 says, tells that we have a little bit of an inclusio going on here, mm -hmm, right? The, mm -hmm. the parable's framed by this reference to the last shall be first. And maybe what Jesus is doing is he's saying, you know, I want you disciples to understand something that you guys seem to think, I'm worried that you guys are going to think that you have a privileged place in the kingdom of God. After all, you've been following me for three and a half years. You've been by my side. You saw me do all these miracles. We did all these things together. And then somebody's going to get converted in Acts chapter two. I know you don't know what Acts chapter two means, but just trust me. <laughs> somebody's going to get convert, you know, uh -huh. going to get converted in Acts chapter two, and you're going to think, okay, you guys, welcome to the club. I'm Peter. You know, this is James, my brother Andrew. You know, and we're the leaders, and you guys are our subordinates. And just like, no, guess what? The last should be first, and the first should be last. I'm going to pay them equally to you. And in God's kingdom, this is equality within the members of the kingdom. And I don't want you guys getting these big heads and thinking that you guys are all better than everybody else. Hmm. So just like in the gospel of Mark, Jesus informs the 12, what is awaiting him in Jerusalem. And so this, this is probably forecasting for Jesus that the cross serves as this model for what service servant leadership in the kingdom of God looks like, right? Yeah. So we have, the first shall be last, last shall be first in verse 16. Then verse 17, they're going to, to Jerusalem and he says, here's what's going to happen, guys. Verse 18, the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests, the scribes. They'll condemn him to death. 
and they're going to deliver him to the Gentiles. They're going to mock him, scourge him, crucify him, and on the third day, he'll rise again. So that follows. The last mm -hmm. shall be first, and the first shall be last. And then the next story is the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, said, hey, can my, bro my kids have, <laughs> yeah. like, first and sit next to you on your right and on your left when you get into your kingdom? And so Jesus is like, okay, look, here's what's going on, guys. The nature of the kingdom is such that we lay down our lives for the sake of the other. Yeah, exactly what's going on here. Yeah. You move along into chapter 20, verses 20 through 28, and you have the request of those brothers that they demonstrate they just don't understand the nature of God, which you could even look at the same thing. You go into Acts chapter 1. Yeah. Uh, and it's the same thing. It's like, okay, guys, say, okay, Jesus, so when is this going to happen? What What is yeah. it going to look like? So, Are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel yes. now? You still might uh, get it, guys. <laughs> yeah. A few more weeks. Hang on there. I'm not telling you when, but the Holy Spirit will come and then you'll get it. Yeah. He's yeah. like, I'm just going to split now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think it's interesting. I always kind of like jokingly when I teach this passage, by the way, Vinny, where Jesus says, hey, guys, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. Mm -hmm. I'm really bad. They're going to mock me, scourge me, spit on me, crucify me. And then, hey, Jesus, are you done? Because um, I, I got a question. I, I want to make sure you're done. But, you know, I, I mean, you're on a roll right now. And, whoa, that's like really heavy. Okay, okay, cool. Can my boy sit on your right and on your left yeah. when, we get, when we get to Jerusalem? He's like, oh, my goodness. You got, uh, uh, sorry to hear about that, Jesus. It sounds really bad. But uh, question, can, I, can we have a favor? Yeah. And Jesus, his answer is, um, okay, here's the deal. Um, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And like, well, of course we can. But the word cup is often a metaphor for suffering. Mm -hmm. And I think in, in Mark's gospel, it's like, can you be baptized with the baptism with, with, with which I'm baptized? Like, well, of course we can. Mm -hmm. Not realizing that baptism is also another symbol mm -hmm. for suffering and oppression. And Jesus comes along and says, okay, here's the deal. Uh, it's not really my authority to give to you who sits on the right and on my left. Now, by the way, who sat on the right and on, and on his left when he got to Jerusalem? the two thieves on the cross that were mm -hmm, crucified. Mm -hmm. So you don't even know what you're asking for, yeah, by the way. Yeah. You think you've got like the seats in Jerusalem and the palace, but they're actually crosses. My father has, has ordained that. Now, what I like also, verse 24 says, the, 10, the other 10 became indignant with the two brothers. Mm -hmm. And Jesus said, here's the deal. And this is the key now, verse 25. The, Gentile, the rules of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men ex exercised authority over them, but it's not so with you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. The Son of Man did not come to be, to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's the whole point, what we've been saying all along. The kingdom of God has come. It's not what you think. Mm -hmm. We do power differently. Not the way the kingdoms of the world do. And because of that, the, the powers of the world are going to come in conflict with this. The mm -hmm. Pharisees, religious leaders, etc. And even the disciples are like, uh, this doesn't make sense, hence the apocalyptic nature of the parables to explain what the kingdom of God looks like. Even John the Baptist is like, uh, are you really the Christ or not? I mean, I know I saw the spirit. I know I leapt when I was like six months in utero. That was like a really cool moment there, like, you know, a womb memory for me. <laughs> but are you really the Christ? And his answer is yes, but it's not what you think. And it's not what you were expecting. So that's a lot of the beef of Matthew. What does this mean for us today? How do we live this out? Yeah, I think this says a lot to us today. I think we can get ourselves in trouble if we go, well, they didn't know and they didn't understand, but we got it all figured out today. Hmm. Now, one of the reasons why we can think that way is because, well, we have podcasts like this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> So we're giving them all the truth now, Betty. So now they yes. all know everything. Yeah. There's like, there's just no confusion from this point forward. But I think one of the reasons why we can think this way is we go, well, we have the Holy Spirit now. So we have the illumination of the Spirit. Therefore, it all makes sense now. Okay, we get it. It was about his cross. It was about the resurrection. We get it. But I think we shouldn't be so naive to think, oh, we don't make these same mistakes ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think what we do is we find out that we too get corrupted by power and we too get corrupted by pleasure and wealth and well-being. And we too get corrupted by, well, if I say this, I won't have to worry about persecution. Mm -hmm. As I've always said before, it goes back to the parable of the sower. The stones are persecution and suffering. And we try to alleviate that. Mm -hmm. And the thorns are 
power, pleasure, wealth, prosperity, and we try to alleviate that. And Jesus says, no, the good soil bears good fruit, even in the midst of stones and even in the midst of thorns. So I think you see that what happens in the church when there's no stones or no thorns, and that is you get power and corruption and everything else. And I, I think this goes back to Constantine, that mm-hmm. when the church became powerful mm-hmm. and when the church became wealthy, it became corrupted. So it's going to be about 325 AD, 315 yeah, yeah. AD. Yeah. And, and exactly, mm-hmm. fourth century and, and afterwards. And from there, we've had to deal with power and corruption, power and corruption, mm-hmm. power and corruption. And I think we experience this today. Now, if you go back to the parable of Matthew 13, one of the parables is the parable of the wheat and the tares. And that parable says, you know, the wheat is, of course, the people of God, the good soil, the good seed, but tares are weeds. And Jesus says, in the middle of the night, an enemy came and sowed weeds in the middle of the field. And you have the wheat and the tares growing up together. And I think we see that. I think we experience that. And I think a lot of people today are disillusioned in Christendom, especially American Christianity, because they look around and go, you people are corrupt. You say one thing, but you do something else. You say you believe in this Jesus thing, but you don't follow it out. You condemn all these people all the time. You're hypocrites. And I think, A, we all have to look at ourselves and go, you know what? We're all guilty. And B, there's a lot of tears in the middle of our church today. And I think one of the reasons why there's a lot of tears in the middle of our church today is because there hasn't been any stones or thorns to weed it out. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're discouraged by what you see in Christendom, then look harder because there really are people, even in your churches, that are really doing wonderful things for Christ and yeah. manifesting yeah. the kingdom of God. They really are. But what you see oftentimes is power and mm-hmm. pleasure and wealth and prosperity and it can be disillusioning yeah okay well i think that gives a solid understanding of matthew that and if people are using the devotionals that uh, that, that you could get uh well, you could get that via the uh, determined truth website right yeah so if you go to, to determinedtruth.com and you go to the blog mm-hmm. the devotionals are posted every friday for the following week's devotionals and you can go back and Start in the Gospel of Mark and just be eight, 10 weeks behind us. No big deal at all. If you want them emailed to you, because that's just easier to get, then just send me a note at rdownerful19 at gmail.com and say, I would like the devotional guide uh, emailed to me. And I email it out every Friday as well uh, for the following study. Okay. And this is just a great way of probably studying the the New Testament and the case so far, Mark and Matthew, in a way that we probably haven't studied it before because we normally glean through it for whether in a devotional, a truly devotional kind of way where you're just kind of gleaning something for yourself. But but you're we're unpacking a lot here in terms of saying let's understand this in its original setting. And that's gonna, I mean, the deeper you go, the more that improves your devotion, right? Yeah. And it's gonna hopefully transform your frame of reference and your mindset mm-hmm. of thinking, okay, what's the kingdom all about? What does this mean? What does this look like? And then you're gonna have to grapple with, or we're gonna have to grapple with, how does this apply in a given situation? And obviously. Yeah. Well, by sacrificially dying, if, if need be, but you know, weigh that out. And again, I not doesn't mean the situations of abuse that that's what you do, things like that. So be careful about that. Yeah. So the next series is going to be Luke. I think we're going to have some other interesting episodes. Luke is so great. Yeah. Yeah. Luke is, uh, so Luke is going to take everything we've been talking about now, and Luke is going to apply it to a Roman official in Rome who's mm-hmm. extremely powerful and profitable. And who's financing Luke's writing of the gospel. Luke's like, hey, dude, guess what? Blessed are the poor. What are you who are rich? What? What are you talking? And so, mm-hmm. and then almost every event in the gospel of Luke is at a meal and meals have all these social constructs about who's mm-hmm. in power mm-hmm. and who sits where. And so Luke is going to be so much fun. And there's a lot in Luke where people just, they really don't understand it. And yeah. if you think you understand the Bible, read the parable at the beginning of Luke 16 and then tell me what it means tomorrow. And <laughs> you're going to go, I have no idea what this okay. is like. Yeah. We're going to have to unpack it. So Good. So we'll address the passion narratives. Like you said, we haven't, we didn't touch them today in the later part of Matthew. We'll do that later. Uh, Anything else coming up that we need to know about? No, just again, continue to be in prayer for Ukraine and the Russians and Ukrainians, as well as the Americans, that the powers that be would just stop all this stuff. Mm -hmm. There's no innocent, uh, innocent people, Mm -hmm. but there's no innocent powers here. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, I think it's just a shame and a tragedy and, uh, hopefully by now, by the time you listen to this podcast, we've already had the podcast with the with the, our friends from Russia. Mm-hmm. 
and you get a perspective of how the people on the ground are suffering. Keep them all in prayer. Absolutely. All right, everyone. Hope this is helping you. Hope you're being blessed by it. And we will see you guys next week. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.